Hello, listeners. This is your host and keeper, Kat. Welcome to Session Zero of Disaster Lesbian's Guide to the Apocalypse. Stay tuned after the closing credits for a preview of our first mystery, because this week we're diving into the setting, rules, and a little bit of character background that we didn't get from those previous episodes. Before we get to all that, though, if you'd like to support us, there are a few ways you can do that. First, you can tell someone about the show. We thrive on word of mouth, and our goofy brand of weird is the perfect thing to recommend to your friends, your polycule, your found family, your biological family, or your favorite ghosts and ghouls. We're fans of Good Pods for their really neat shareability features, but whatever you prefer works for us. If you do leave a review, let us know via tweet or Tumblr message and you'll get a shout out on the show. We're going to be relaunching our Patreon efforts shortly, along with a full rebrand to Danger Square Productions. You should be able to still find us at patreon.com slash sosasmedia for the time being, but look for that to change in the coming weeks. So, without further ado, let's get to the episode. everyone and welcome to a very exciting session zero that's all that's kind of a lie session zeros aren't the most exciting thing in the world are they i mean we already played session zero like what four times that's true we did play <laughs> session zero by megan cross which you could find at meganloonftw.itch.io which was pretty fun it was yeah, it's a delightful a little game okay so what we're gonna do today is we are going to go over some of the basics of the setting. Uh, that'll be sort of a conversation that the four of us have, just kind of talking through, you know, what things we're bringing to the setting, including character-specific stuff, character-specific locations, but also just a general kind of vibe check to understand. Like lines and veils and yeah. expectations and hopes. Exactly hopes dreams aspirations uh then the other thing we're going to do is we're going to go over the agendas and basic moves for each of the players and then you can elaborate on the move choices you made with your character sheet as well 
and then following that i'll talk about what my responsibilities are as the keeper um and i think probably we'll just make sure to remind ourselves of those agenda points or at least i will remind myself of those agenda points at the beginning of each adventure so that we have a good basis for keeping going with the way that we should be progressing the story you know not to steal too much from austin walker but like austin walker is literally right there and is so good at this mm-hmm. everyone copies the masters right yeah cannot speak for austin walker but i generally think he'd be okay with you taking that so um let's talk about setting so disaster lesbian's guide to the apocalypse is set in what is effectively the real world in 2024 and not the MTV show The Real World, but the world that we currently actually exist in. I wrote my character completely wrong then. Yeah, um, unfortunately, just due to the nature of the way the characters are going to be moving around a lot, you really should have used the Road Rules playbook instead of the Real World playbook. Oops. I'm so confused. <laughs> this is. I have no idea what is happening. I'm making really stupid jokes about, like... 90s and early 2000s mtv i don't know where i am you're in toronto i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> recording None of us know what we're doing that's the point <laughs> oh i do yeah i know exactly what i'm doing oh i, have, I haven't got a clue i haven't had a clue since we started so it's like, that's not it's, unusual it's like it's like that time that mitt romney said that obama knows exactly what he's doing except that um i'm not a neoliberal <laughs> I'm just, like, firing on all cylinders with stupid, obscure references today. Okay. It's 2024. Yes, the f- it is the 2024. The iPhone 15 is here. The distant future of 1994, when pop music has taken over the world. <laughs> um, if you haven't watched it, you should watch the movie The Apple. It's very good. Uh, okay. So, Disaster Lesbians takes place in the near future in a world very much like our own, except in this world actually kind of like our own monsters are real vampires werewolves frankensteins skeletons etc all of those exist in this world and generally have their own sort of culture and society and all that fun stuff um i promise on my honor that these monsters will not secretly be aliens good because i feel like that's a cop-out Especially if there's, like, an interdimensional portal to a different alien world that... Yeah, that's not happening in this series. Now, question. Will there be aliens? Explicitly, no. And there's a reason for that. Like, as much as I do love the X-Files and the whole, like, sci-fi quest for alien life, um, I feel like the episodes of the X-Files that I found most memorable were less the ones about the aliens and more the ones about weird beings that are just part of the earth that we live on you know like i mean it's a very classic episode for a reason but like tombs right the most classic of x-files villains is just a weird freaky dude who builds a bile cocoon and hibernates for 30 years and then eats seven livers and hibernates for 30 years again that's just like it's fantastical but still of this world and that's where i wanted to put the focus for this series you know still fantastical but not extraterrestrial because we've done a pretty 
hefty amount of sci-fi since 2020. Um, uh, the other thing that this series is going to have is because it is an apocalyptic narrative, um, we're going with a fairly traditional biblical apocalypse for this one. So in addition to all of the monsters and creatures and things like that, we're also going to be dealing with um, demons, angels, heavenly hierarchy, and an ongoing sort of prelude to the actual apocalypse with the express goal of stopping it from happening. So to that end, every once in a while you will encounter characters who have a very specific agenda and that agenda primarily serves one of the three or four major factions sort of in this war for firmament if you will you know there's the side of heaven there's the side of hell there's the side of the monsters who are kind of caught in between and there's a side of humanity who no matter who wins is kind of fucked and has a vested interest in preventing the war before it begins, you know? So, um, I would love it if we could talk a little bit about how each of the characters sort of comes into this world. What specific things you would like to investigate, what specific things you'd like to... Like, ultimately the thing about making an OC is you make an OC so you can put them in situations. What kind of situations do you want to put your OC in? Like, um, Erin, with Euphrema, I know a big thing for her is being a good scientist, in effect. Being someone who catalogs and archives real information about these creatures. Yeah, definitely. That and try trying to find, like, actual physical proof while maintaining a kind of, like, uh, conservation of it. Mm -hmm. So that putting information out there won't ruin their lives <laughs> right it, it's it's very much an ecologist sort of an angle yeah so are there any situations that you think would be interesting to put euphrema in like in terms of giving her ethical dilemmas to contend with and stuff like maybe finding like some kind of cryptid population that exists but is severely endangered and at risk because of something going on because they aren't known about like, keeping it under wraps that this thing exists so they don't get exploited, while also trying to deliver help for it. Uh, it, it in a in a glib sort of way, a little bit of a Fern Gully dilemma. Yeah. Where if people knew about the Fern Gully peoples, they would probably exploit the shit out of them, but we also need to stop them from plowing over the forest without putting the population of Fern Gully in danger. Mm -hmm. Okay, Erica, I know that Riley's big thing is sort of contending with fate, in a sense. Obligation, duty, filial piety. Yeah, I think, I think there's kind of several conflicts within the story I'm looking to tell with Riley um, and the person I'm looking to inhabit. Um, I think there is sort of that... I don't know, returning to the concept of like the six types of literary conflict, right? Like mm -hmm. you do, you have, you have character versus society in that Riley is a member of the order of the Ares, um, something ancient and much larger than her. 
um, and yet something deeply ingrained in her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is not a matter of escape or a matter of rebellion per se, but a matter of figuring out where, how her life, how that big old Tetris piece, it's like it's not a tetra, Tetramino, it's like a Octamino. I don't know. It's it's a big Tetris piece and how it fits into her life. I conceptually exactly understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and there's also like character versus self because mm-hmm. at this point, um, Riley is in her mid-20s. Um, she has finished graduate school for a degree in library science. It's not something she was planning on. Um, it's just like, well, you finished undergrad and like, now what? And when especially people have been exposed to academics a lot of their life, like you just keep going to school. Um, it's graduate school to avoid having to become an adult. In yes. effect. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Um, and also like kind of stuck in this small town in New mm-hmm. Hampshire because that's where my parents are. And that's where the specific cloister or there's a word I use, but the, the specific sect, if you will, of, of the order. Uh, I, I don't, I kind of want to stay away from cult words. Um, yeah. They, yeah. Cause the order doesn't seem so much like a cult as it does like a, it's a so- society order. Society I think is like the like, word yeah. I use. Yeah. Um, and, and also I, I think tied into that because of the nature of the order and the supernatural in this world sort of loosely defined here because it's one of the big themes we're exploring throughout the course of the story, right? Um, but mm-hmm. the nature of the Order of the Ares is one of prophecy and of uh, oracle um, divination, largely. Um, I think we've sort of, we've sort of talked about what because magic is a big part of Monster of the Week. Like, right. it is yeah. built right in there. Uh, one of your stats is entirely about interacting with magic in the world. And so I didn't want to be throwing around fireballs and, and icicles and stuff. Um, so I think currently the way magic kind of looks in my head is like another layer unto reality that's hard to see. And like it exists of sort of energy but also spirit or soul like and where's the differentiation there it's unclear but like when stuff moves through it it leaves ripples behind like something moving through a river you could sort of see ripples right and so like right i think in effect a sort of ether that exists yeah yeah and um and so it's it's none of it's easy Like, easy (laughs) does not apply to any of this, but, like, predicting, not predicting, I guess, trying to tell what happened in the past, that's a lot easier task compared to, like, Orison, like, predicting what's going to happen in the future. Um, Right. There's a difference between reading the ripples that are already there and calculating a probable vector based on the ripples that are already there to where the ripples will be going. Which is kind of what Riley's dad does as the head of their sect um, and also the head of the order. We'll get into that more. It's also mm-hmm. a lot in, in the particular Session Zero episode with Riley. Um, and so I think there is this, there's a draw to the order, both familial and curiosity, because mm-hmm. it is really weird. And Riley is academic in ways. 
Um, I don't know that she's particularly sharp or like um, quick-witted, but um, she enjoys reading. Um, and for that reason, like I'm not running away from the cult. I'm not right. running away from the order. If you wanna, yeah. Um, but yeah. So to sort of kind of put a nice little bow on it, it it feels like Riley's journey is a bit of a coming of age story. I suppose, yeah. In that she's figuring out how each and every little part of her life fits into who Riley is yeah. as a person. Because that's sort of because... that difficult part of becoming an adult, is having to start to define yourself in yeah. ways that are relevant to you, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's like, also a girl who went to college and had friends and likes hanging out down at the like tourist pier and eating saltwater taffy from this guy named Gord and all sorts of stuff. So like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that's very, that captures it. Very much balancing how to become an adult in the world versus the sort of sense of wonder that you come into adulthood with. Yeah. Um. So Emma, what? kind of situations do you want to see Bev get put into? So we talked about how Bev is kind of, you know, have ha, Bev has spent a long, a lot of time finding uh, Bev's self um, over the course of their life. Um, so they have a very good connection to themselves, but not so much to the world around them and the community around them. Um, so I think one of Bev's biggest challenges that I want to see kind of manifest is connecting with community, however that looks. Um, and community was absolutely a word I was going to use if you didn't, because yeah. I feel like that is sort of essential to the development of the character. Is yeah. You have this character who's worked on their self-actualization to become who they are, and the thing that they're still missing is... Community. Community. Yeah. Um, and part of that, part of that is like overcoming like past traumas of mm -hmm. interacting with other people and having, whether genuine or merely perceived, um, having, having rejection, experiencing rejection and getting over, getting over that, that former trauma to the point where, you know, Bev can actually put themselves out there and build that community, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, um, I don't know if we ever got a chance to talk about this. Uh, does Bev believe in ghosts? Like Bev's perspective on the world is that uh, we don't know anything. We don't know jack shit. Um, Bev doesn't specifically believe in ghosts, but is not a disbeliever. Sort of someone who doesn't actively concern themselves with the existence of the paranormal, but doesn't categorically deny it. Um, there's just a lot of other stuff to worry about than something. Yeah, there's that a you lot don't... more pressing things yeah. for 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 Bev to worry about in in their day to day that it doesn't really come up, and it's like I don't I don't know it, it, like it's possible, mm -hmm. but I'm not gonna you know I don't I don't have enough experience or evidence to outright deny the possibility of, of existence of the supernatural, the, the paranormal, etc. That makes sense. 
Um, okay, so then I have a question for everyone that I want to put out there. Um, in effect, within the narrative of the series, you three are all sort of chosen one figures, right? You're, you are the three who have been chosen to stop the apocalypse by the uh, angel of the Lord who has created a time loop for you guys to try again. Because the version of the story we're telling is not the first time any of this has happened, right? This is the second go-around at trying to prevent the apocalypse. Specifically our second go-around? Uh, I mean, second is maybe not the most accurate, because I don't think there's any way for you guys to know how many times it's happened. What I'm getting at is, is this the first time that our individual characters have gone through this process? I don't think so. Or is this, like, we're stepping into the roles of various, like, mm, are we playing the part or... Mm. I don't think you're playing... Are we playing the part in a new production of a, of a play or are, have we been playing this... Like, it, are, are we are we a touring company, or is this, like... I was gonna say, to use the play does metaphor... does it get cast in, in this each... Is, this is it... not your... This is not you three debuting as these characters. Okay. So this we... This is... We, we ourselves are on tour, rather than the roles get recast at each destination. Right. You guys gotcha. are, in effect, doing a second week saturday matinee performance of stopping the apocalypse uh that doesn't track with what i'm getting at if if this was a community theater production of stop the apocalypse oh no i was thinking like professional touring company like i i know each iteration each time there is an apocalypse is a new production in a new city so yes in that case you are a touring company we are dedicated performers with the tour touring company the roles do not get recast at each city they go to gotcha this is a very elaborate metaphor through which to communicate the fact that we've done this before riley bev and euphrema have all previously tried to stop the apocalypse and failed however many times it doesn't particularly matter the goal is to make this one the closing production right show closes after this one right um so to that end the question that I have for everyone is, um, how do you feel, how do you think your characters will react to learning that they have this incredibly pressing destiny that they have to contend with? Frustration. I think that's fair. Skepticism. Um, how do you think Bev is going to contend with having a fate? Um, disbelief and refusal. Um, yeah, I think that's... That makes sense for everyone, I think. Um, what happens then when you are confronted with something irrefutable about that fate? Is that specifically to me or? To everyone. I mean, like, uh, you're to, but mostly to, like, you know, with, with Riley, the annoyance is like, yeah, fucking of course, I've got another thing that I have to deal with that <laughs> the weight of the world is on my shoulders between the stupid order and the stupid apocalypse. Well, yeah, and it's like, again, uh, the the entire Order of the Ares was founded on like this principle of this 12-step cycle of the universe, essentially. Mm -hmm. I, wait, is that how many are in Alcoholics Anonymous? Yes, it is. <laughs> Damn it. Not that one. Um, like, literally, like, 
when the order was initially founded, it it was like it was the order of the Aries, and then there was sort of these predicted cataclysms or major events that like similar to like how we might say age of Aquarius, although that's astrologically based, right? That's based on the motions of outer planets. There's sort of this like cycle that because it happened way back in ancient Greece, like um Greece or up, Rome. Rome, sorry. Yep. Um ended up with this sort of astrological connection and um anyhow, like the return of the Aries era is like the end, according to the ini- the very initial foundings of the Order of the Aries. That's where the name mm-hmm. comes from. And like, yeah, so for yeah, I, I think you're right when you say like it is partially like of course, like yeah, of course this bullshit comes when I'm alive, like and not in the past three thousand years. Um, but also it's like, oh shit, they were right. Like obviously mm-hmm some of this is real like a lot of it's real magic's fucking real and so like why should i have thought otherwise but um also that spells danger for my fam like outside of the fucking apocalypse like my dad is the fucking oracle like he is this will put him in danger because he is the most in contact with whatever the magic is of pretty much anyone on earth that the order knows of, you know, like there, there's probably mm-hmm. other stuff going on, but like frustration because of, yeah, like fate and fate is already such a theme within Riley's life, but also frustration because it's like, this complicates everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Less of a refusal of the call and more of a begrudging picking up the phone after checking caller ID. Yeah. That's a good metaphor. Um, so Aaron, you talked about um, Euphrema sort of rejecting it and denying it. And um, I wouldn't Emma, say rejecting. Said, I, I said skepticism. Yeah, right. Skepticism, disbelief in in effect is yeah. Uh, obviously, Euphrema being someone who is a believer in all of these supernatural things mm-hmm. is not someone who is easily dissuaded by a lack of concrete evidence. Yeah, like Euphrema would initially would be like, well. It's not that I don't believe there could be angels. It's that I'm not sure you are. Right. Kind of thing. So to be offered up like irrefutable proof, I think the end result of that uh, that uh, train of thought would be uh, excitement. Because <laughs> to, get, to get evidence of that means truly anything else could be possible. Mm-hmm. which opens up so many other doors and then being hit in the face with the fate thing um a little less enthused because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. she has based so much of life on being the only controlling force in her life so, so. like f- i think a shared theme that uh, bev and euphrema kind of have is that sort of yearning for self-control and for freedom i can see i think i think self-control self self-control more is is a lot more applicable to yeah to bev yeah but freedom of self-determination freedom to decide who you are and what you do with your life and being confronted with a huge world shaping fate is kind of a big deal in the face of those values Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, so then I think the other question I kind of want to get at before we get into talking about our agendas and going over the moves and things like that is what keeps you on the road or maybe what gets you on the road? And I don't know that what gets you on the road and what keeps you on the road are two different questions, right? And we can have what gets you on the road play out as part of the initial adventure. But in the face of everything, especially against, you know, Riley's responsibilities to the Order and stuff like that, what keeps you doing these investigations instead of, I don't know, becoming a librarian or, you know, going to do... What's Bev's job? What's your job? (laughs) A homemaker. Oh, well, okay. Um, I don't know, dude. That's I don't know what to tell fully you. Fully a lie. <laughs> Just unemployed. Like maybe that's not a question that we know how to answer yet. What keeps you on the road? I mean, you know, like you're not getting jobs from literal Satan to do these things. Are you saying you, that saving the whole world does not come with insurance benefits? Uh, you do not get vision. You do not get dental. Um, and you do have to buy your insurance on the healthcare marketplace. I still think my favorite joke that I made during Star Wars was Organicare. (laughs) (laughs) So, maybe a more relevant question than what keeps you on the road is... Because I feel like asking character questions might be premature. Um, Is there anything you specifically don't want to see the characters go through? Any situations that are, like, red flags? Or lines and veils and stuff like that. And if it is something you'd like us to edit out, I can do that as well. Like, what's something that you explicitly don't want? Because I don't want to take your characters in a direction that is unsatisfying. Something that would be frustrating, you know? I think through through it, throughout the story, I don't want... And, and I'm only speaking for me here. Like, I don't want to become divine. I don't want to become more than human. I think it kind of betrays the story I want to tell about a human. Uh, I will clarify that, that that fundamental changes to you to your humanity were not something that I was planning for cool. Riley yeah. because I don't think that's an interesting way for her story to go. And and it's just kind of what I'm thinking. Like right, I'm just working. Yeah. yeah no, sorry. I full, full, no fully agree. We're in agreement. Um, and like I I don't like necessarily enjoy the idea of pulling a player character into something they don't want you know like i'm not going to have any have a narrative beat be that any of you are turned into werewolves without you first saying i want to be a werewolf you know there obviously there are going to be situations that you're placed in where the you know your character is uncomfortable oh, yeah. and you know right. forced you to change in a way that they don't, don't want have to. full autonomy or something right like this is the nature of the story but like yeah no yeah I certainly think in... you're not going to be turned into like a nephilim or something like that i think also alongside that is like body horror like obviously i know there's going to be some horror aspects to this game there is going to be like weird shit in this game and i'm all for that like I just don't need, like, Cronenberg descriptions of, like, body stuff. I second that one, actually, yeah. (laughs) Mm. 
Well, this show just got a lot less horny. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry. That, no, can... I, I'm not. I'm not actually disappointed in that. I want to be clear. I'm doing it. It's like it's a joke. I just. I just wanted to make the joke. <laughs> but yeah, like I'm not going to describe the processes of dismemberment or anything like that. You know, like that's that's like, you know, you might see like a creature coming up from like a shadowy corpse with blood all over its face no absolutely and that's absolutely fine but like descriptions of what happens to each individual organ like yeah i don't need like wings ripping out of someone's back and like just pains and yelling and like the uh, getting into like the like nitty-gritty yeah yeah no there might be wings that rip out of someone's back but the furthest description i'll get to is like Maybe a blood spray, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not and that's fine. Screaming agony or anything like that. The snapping of tendons. And, uh, uh. Yeah, that 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 doesn't track with you know the TV fourteen rating. If that like, and in fact, I think that is an important thing for us to talk about is that like sort of generalized rating, right? Like one of the things about this being a explicitly queer story which I think differentiates it from the, like, sort of more casual queerness of the same coin, is that, you know, there's going to be more, for you know, for lack of a better term, there's going to be, it's a more sexual series, right? Like, yeah. it's not necessarily yeah. going to be explicit. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to ask you to role play like, first time doing anal sex or whatever. But, like, there, there will be more opportunity to delve into those bits of like sexuality and romance because the whole purpose of this show is queer survival in the apocalypse and there's a reason that gilbert baker put both sex and magic on the original pride flag and it's so that we could do this show (laughs) specifically (laughs) but yeah like in in that way sex and magic are sort of inextricable from queerness and i think that's sort of important to the way that the show goes so like generally speaking from a blood and gore perspective i'm thinking like tv 14 not like hbo yeah um and but but then from like a sexuality sex and romance sort of perspective maybe a bit more tvma cool um two questions yeah um does sexual violence have a place in our story i'm not saying us committing it obviously but like yeah, yeah. um that's is a that a question. complete red line i don't think that's something that i necessarily want to contend with obliquely oh. i think as metaphor it's maybe a bit more fair game i i think okay so uh i just so if i might finish this thought real quick um in the way that like uh in dracula right the dracula's brides take advantage of jonathan and right the way that mm-hmm. vampirism is used as a metaphor for sexuality and yes. everything like that that more so mm-hmm. than game of thrones style because i feel like that just it's less effective as a way of communicating because it's so immediately repugnant. Yep. Cool. Emma, you were going to say something. I I guess my question was: were, Are we comfortable with 
addressing like is it like the 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 backgrounds of specific stories or narratives that we delve into are we comfortable with that being like like a starting point of like some like episodic narratives okay so let's um yeah so to to take a very specific example um the sort of lady in white story right that's a thing that Aaron, i know you know that one erica you nodded emma is that something you're familiar with not really i mean um is there another like example so it's uh, it's a specific type of ghost it's a woman dressed oh right, 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 right. yeah no 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 i'm familiar like, thank you yep no i yeah. got it now yep 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 so like something like that is still fair game right because in effect a lot of the central narratives of ghost stories are about trauma and there are many forms <laughs> that trauma can take and i think in that respect it does have a place but i don't think it is going to be present in the way yeah like in game of thrones it is a central plot point that actively happens to all like to a bunch of characters and that that's not something i'm interested in dealing with cool right you know it's it's far more yeah it's it's gonna be like much more backstory yeah yep cool like i just figured that's setting the stage as opposed to the content of exactly you know it's gonna be lore that you look up in the game's manual rather than lore that gets presented to you in the game in, in a very NES like, sort of booklety manual or like the like 30 second intro in a in the cold open yeah something to the, something like that uh, very cool i'm glad um, that you asked that question you said you had two questions though i do um okay we've talked about blood uh sex magic what's our stance on sugar in this world um, do we have a complete Red Hot Chili Peppers album, or? Uh, so we know for a fact that Riley does love saltwater taffy. So we do, <laughs> in true. fact, canonically already have sugar okay. involved. So we've got blood, sh- so blood we do sugar, have blood sex, sugar magic. sex magic. Yes. Perfect. Okay. okay. And we're set. <sighs> uh, so, yeah, actually, that's a good point, though. As Erica has asked questions, do either of... Emma or Aaron, do you have questions that you wanted to ask me going into this to kind of get a better idea for tone and environment and stuff like that? Not so much a question Um, as kind of making a clear statement of certain topics that won't be touched on with that get lumped into the paranormal, specifically cryptozoology, like appropriated uh, cultural uh, pieces. Yeah, we're not going to be dealing with appropriated indigenous stuff um you know the name you're not supposed to say Mm -hmm. hamlet or (laughs) even going as far as like thunderbirds and stuff like that that's not gonna these are things things that are active in various these are active practices not mythologies yeah i i'm fully comfortable with goofing on and disrupting christianity because of the cultural hegemony of it but certainly not doing the same for indigenous practices um now just to give something that as you brought that up i thought of again as like a thing um i want to sort of keep the framing of where our stories take place 
generally speaking, to the northeast, if that makes sense. Like It's something that we all have context for. Yeah, so like, yeah. no further south than Virginia, and certainly no further west than like, Kentucky. If that That's sort of... It, yeah, basically like, um, Illinois and Wisconsin are out, Michigan and Indiana are in. Um, mostly because I never want to have to go to Wisconsin ever again, even in fiction. But you're okay with Indiana? <laughs> I'm more okay with Indiana because my only experience with Indiana was on, I was driving on I-90, so I didn't exactly get to see a lot of it, so I don't have any hatred for it. Okay. Um, and we just, we have to have Ohio involved because otherwise we don't get the Loveland frog. Yes. That would be a detriment to everyone listening. Yes. There must be, at one point, an episode where you guys hang out with the Loveland Frog. Now, okay, question. Are we okay with expanding these borders if we have somebody, like a guest on the show, who may be from these places outside of? Uh, Yeah, I think the big thing, though, is I just, I want it to be feasible as a drive. Gotcha. You know, I, I'm not interested in recreating the supernatural map. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but there's a f- series of fan-created maps that, from episode to episode, track all of the going? places that the brothers have driven across the continental U.S. It's Mighty Joe in Shemong Township, New Jersey. Yes, I'm aware of the giant gorilla. We have a lot of weird stuff in New Jersey. We're going to be stopping there, I'm sure. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so there's a lot of where I am coming from stems from repeat childhood readings of the various published works under the Weird New Jersey banner. Huh, right. Now, expansion um, to that, will we be going to Canada? I think we kind of... We kind of have to. Have to. <laughs> I believe we explicitly said okay. i have a passport for that reason <laughs> yeah hey cat yeah if i may suggest something this is a good utility to use for ideas oh yeah that is useful i will save that for myself um okay so then um the quick did you guys have any other questions before we move on to the actual gameplay aspect um i think i'm in no i know the title of the game I am in no rush to evolve, to to push Riley's understanding of her sexuality. Like, eventually that is a thing, right? Right. It, it, but it has to be organic. Yeah. Like, I guess that's the, on, that's the only other thing I... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to, like, immediately throw you in and be like, uh, and you see this, like, you see a woman, or you think maybe she might be a woman and you're attracted. all you know is she's the hottest person you've yes. ever seen uh likewise with bev i don't think like it, we've got time we got time yeah so like but bev's we'll... already done like gender shit right? sure sure gender shit and sexuality shit but like the community aspect of things that's oh, just sure. i don't want it to be right. like like oh hey and then our first bev adventure you, you guys meet invited a... to help build a community garden like Uh, yeah so for the purposes of the actual in-game time like there's like four years before the apocalypse is supposed to kick off 
So there is plenty of time for your characters to develop, to mature, and to come into understandings of themselves before they have to face off against an existential threat. I'm in no rush to push this into, like, final countdown within the first however long. You know, it's, it's always going to be simmering there. There's always going to be, like, omens and portents and things like that that you'll have to contend with. But it won't become, like, a serious open war or anything like that for a very long time. By the end of this season, are we solving the apocalypse? Or is this like a, we're going to come back to this several times, multi-season type of thing? That's a good question. Um, I feel like given the multiple years of... <laughs> of same coin? Time that like oh. exists in game, mm-hmm. there's a strong chance that this is a, like, season one sort of leads into the season one leans more heavily on cryptids and investigations and stuff like that sure yep as it leads into having to come to terms with fate and stuff like that so like this season could theoretically end with riley still being straight cool yeah and like i'm just trying to think of there's a show we've watched recently I mean, like, Buffy is kind of like, at the end of the first season, they defeat, like, the King of Demons or whatever, and then it turns out he's just, like, not shit. Shit actually gets real. Or, like, with Supernatural, at the end of the first season, they kill the yellow-eyed demon who they've been trying to get revenge on since he killed their mom. Right. Um, And then that leads them into the broader world of demonology, and then that leads them into the conflict between heaven and hell. I I think, additionally... Uh, unrelated to plot, I think taking that format will allow us to have a Star Trek first season where we can like experiment, get the characters to know each other, and like give ourselves the leeway of our first season could be shit, and give us the that that space to like okay, now that we have an idea of what we want to do for season two, let's fucking go for it. Yes, it's much more, it, it's it's more in, yeah, that 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 kind of yeah. fits, right? Like, Supernatural, in effect, stops being, at a certain point, because it's so driven by these apocalyptic narratives, stops being a monster of the week show because it becomes a serial drama. Yeah. And I think we're emphasizing far more the monster of the week with... At least this season. Yep, cool. And I think this season will probably take place over the course of um, a in-game calendar time of one year, if that makes sense. And I think that's why I want to keep the frame to the Northeast, mm-hmm. because I want it to be a feasible drive. Yeah, cool. Love it. Okay, so then let's... Okay, so uh, let's briefly, before we get to... Um, how you guys are all getting to New York City, which is the thing I requested you, how and why you're going to New York. Um, Let's go over some of the functions of Monster of the Week. So for those in the audience not aware, Monster of the Week is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which means everyone's going to be rolling 2d6 using the typical success, um, mix success, and failure range bands on the dice results. Um, So... Would one of you like to kind of read the hunter agenda and then we'll take turns going through the basic moves that is on page one of the reference sheets. I will. Uh, When you're playing your hunter, act like you're the hero in the story because you are. Make your own destiny. (laughs) 
find the damn monsters and stop them. Play your hunter like they're a real person. Okay, Think so when it does say make oh, yeah. your own destiny, I do want to clarify you don't have to program, like, a Warframe knockoff. <sighs> but you can. I quit. Why? Because you're upset that I called destiny a Warframe knockoff? No, I'm upset that I understand this joke. That's a you problem, not a me problem. <laughs> okay, so uh, in order to facilitate those agenda points... You guys have access to a couple of basic moves. Um, Aaron, would you like to read Kick Some Ass, maybe? Sure. And then I can kind of give a summary of what that looks like in play. When you get into a fight and kick some ass, roll plus tough. On a 7+, plus, you and whatever you're fighting inflict harm on each other. The amount of harm is based on the established dangers in the game. That usually means you inflict the harm rating of your weapons and your enemy inflicts their harm rating on you. On a 10+, plus, choose one extra effect. You gain the advantage plus one forward or give plus one forward to another hunter. You inflict terrible harm, plus one harm. You suffer less harm, less one harm, or minus one harm. You force them where you force them where you want them. Advanced on a 12 plus instead pick an enhanced effect. You completely hold the advantage. All hunters involved in the fight get plus one forward. You suffer no harm at all. Your attacks inflict double the normal harm. Your attack drives the enemy away in a rep. Aaron, you mentioned rolling plus tough um, and a couple of concepts that I wanted to go over in addition to that, plus one forward uh, and things like that. So we can sort of talk through what that means. So plus tough. Each of the characters has, is it five stats, attributes, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, you have charm, cool, sharp, tough, and weird. So charm, social skills, things like that. Cool is your ability to stay calm under pressure. Sharp is your intellect, uh, analytics, stuff like that. Tough is your beefiness. And weird is your magic. How attuned to the supernatural you are. Um, and then another concept that'll echo as we go through is the concept of plus one forward and plus one ongoing. Plus one forward means that your next roll gains an additional plus one against that creature. Plus one ongoing means every roll going forward gets a plus one versus that creature or person. Yep. Uh, Emma, would you like to read Act Under Pressure? Act Under Pressure. When you act under pressure, roll plus cool. On a 10 plus, you do what you set out to do. On a 7 to 9, the keeper is going to give you a worse outcome, hard choice, or price to pay. With an advanced move, on a 12 plus, you may choose to either do what you wanted and something extra, or to do what you wanted to absolute perfection. Okay, so yeah, act under pressure is basically, like I said with cool, your ability to keep calm. Um, it's how much you have your shit together during a tense situation. And that dictates how well or poorly the thing you set out to do goes. Um, Erica, would you like to read help out? Sure. When you help another hunter with a move they are making, roll plus cool. On a 10 plus, your help grants them plus one to their roll. On a seven through nine, your help grants them plus one to their roll, but you also expose yourself to trouble or danger. On a miss, you expose yourself to trouble or danger without helping. Note that help bonuses do not stack. If two people help out, the hunter still just gets plus one on their roll. Okay, cool. So yeah, help out is basically just 
to aid someone else. So you'll stack a series of rolls. If you have a high cool stat and you want to help someone out, that is usually going to be a pretty good way to make difficult rolls much more possible. But you're opening Um, yourself up to danger in doing so. so. Yes, potentially. Um, The next one is investigate a mystery. When you investigate a mystery, roll plus sharp. On a 10 plus, hold two. On a seven to nine, hold one. One hold can be spent to ask the keeper one of the following questions. What happened here? What sort of creature is it? What can it do? What can it hurt? Where did it go? What was it going to do? Or what's being concealed here? And if you take an advanced move on a 12 plus, you can ask the keeper any question, not just the listed ones. So for that, on a 10 plus, you get to ask two questions. On a 7 to 9, you get to ask one. Uh, Aaron, I apologize for giving you the long ones. Would you like to roll? Uh, would you like to read manipulate someone? I guess. Once you've given them a reason, tell them what they want to do and roll plus charm. For a normal person, on a 10 plus, then they'll do it for the reason you gave them. If you ask too much, they'll tell you the minimum it would take for them to do it. Or if there's no way, they do it. On 7 to 9, they'll do it, but only if you do something for them right now to show that you mean it. If you ask too much, they'll tell you what, if anything, it would take for them to do it. Advanced on a 12+, plus, not only do they do what you want right now, they also become your ally for the rest of the mystery, or if you do enough for them permanently. For another hunter on a 10+, plus, if they do what you ask, they mark experience and get plus one forward. On 79, they mark experience if they do what you ask. On a miss, it's up to the hunter to decide how badly you offend or annoy them. They mark experience if they decide not to do what you asked. Monsters and minions cannot normally be manipulated. Advanced, on a 12+, plus, they must act under pressure to resist your request. If they do what you ask, they mark one experience and take plus one ongoing while doing what you asked. Okay, so yeah. Uh, manipulate someone functions slightly differently if you are manipulating a non-player character versus manipulating a player character. So when it says for a normal person, it means like any NPC. That NPC might also be a hunter, but they're not necessarily a hunter, capital H hunter, in the sense that you guys are as player characters. Um, And then when you manipulate a player character, if you do choose to do that, then the rules about marking experience and gaining plus one forward and everything like that come into play. Uh, Emma, would you like to read Protect Someone? Protect Someone. When you prevent harm to another character, roll plus tough. On a 7+, plus, you protect them okay, but they'll suffer some or all of the harm they were going to get. On a 10+, plus, choose an extra. You suffer little harm, minus one harm. All impending danger is now focused on you. You inflict harm on the enemy, or you hold the enemy back. Advanced. On a 12+, both you and the character you are protecting are unharmed and out of danger. If you are protecting a bystander, they also become your ally. Okay, so yeah, protect someone is a pretty self-explanatory move. I don't think we need to go too in-depth on that. Um, And then one that I think will probably come up fairly often, read a bad situation. When you look around and read a bad situation, roll plus sharp. On a 10 plus, hold 3. On a 7 to 9, hold 1. One hold can be spent to ask the keeper one of the following questions. What's my best way in? What's my best way out? Are there any dangers we haven't noticed? What's the biggest threat? What's most vulnerable to me? And what's the best way to protect the victims? 
If you act on the answers, you get plus one ongoing while the information is relevant. With the advanced move on a 12 plus, you can also ask the keeper any question, not just the listed ones. Um, and then we have one last one, which is use magic. When you use magic, say what you're trying to achieve and how you would do the spell, then roll plus weird. On a 10 plus, the magic works without issue, choose your effect. On a 7 to 9, it works imperfectly, choose your effect and a glitch. The keeper will decide what effect the glitch has. And then with an advanced, on a 12 plus, the keeper will offer you some additional benefits. So magic can be used to inflict harm, enchant a weapon, which will give it plus one harm and the magic quality, do one thing that is beyond human limitations, bar a place or portal to a specific person or type of creature, trap a specific person, minion, or monster, banish a spirit or curse from a person, object, or place it inhabits, summon a monster into the world, communicate something that you do communicate with something you don't share a language with, observe another place or time, or heal one harm from an injury or cure a disease slash neutralize a poison. The glitches are that the effect might be weakened, it might have a short duration, it might cause one harm to you, ignoring armor, the magic might draw immediate unwelcome attention, or it might have a problematic side effect. The keeper is also able to say that the spell might require materials, might take 10 seconds, 30 seconds, or one minute to cast, require ritual chanting and gestures, uh, require you to draw arcane symbols, require help, or need a tome for the specifics of the magical details. So, in effect, basically, use magic is going to be how you manipulate the supernatural and how that supernatural sort of snaps back at being manipulated. Um, and just for the listener's sake, Erica's internet died. Uh, that's why you won't be hearing Erica for the rest of the recording until we get to the character intros, which Erica and I will be recording later. Um, so there's another concept that we have to talk about, uh, or two concepts that we have to talk about before I feel like we've sort of explained the game enough that we're all able to play it. Uh, the first concept is harm. So, uh... Emma, why don't you read Harm for us? Third column, second page. Um, we already did Big Magic? We're skipping over that. Oh, are we? Okay. Harm. Whenever you suffer harm, the Keeper will tell you what effect it has. Injury severity depends on how much harm you've suffered. Zero harm wounds have only minor short-term effects. Four to seven harm wounds are serious and unstable. They will get worse unless treated. Mark the unstable box. Eight harm or more will kill a normal human, including a hunter. Armor reduces the harm suffered but Armor reduces the harm suffered by the number of points it is rated for. Monsters may not be defeated until you use their weakness against them, and this applies to some minions as well. So, harm can also be recovered. Zero harm wounds are considered recovered and healed right away. One to three harm wounds improve when you receive first aid and later when you rest. Heal one when you do. Unstable, unstable wounds require first aid to become stable. While unstable, they may get worse. Plus four harm wounds require a healing move, time in an infirmary or hospital, or magical healing. At the end of the mystery, you also have a chance to heal. If there's no chance to rest, heal one harm. If there's plenty of time, heal all harm. So, in effect, your harm tracks are going to represent your ability to continue surviving the fight. Harm is only going to come in the form of specifically physical violence that you're going to suffer. So this doesn't work like strain or anything like that. Um, 
you know, there are aspects of magic and things like that where you might suffer harm in order to do something. Uh, that particularly is focused on magical effects because, you know, you're sapping your own personal energy in order to do it. But in most cases, you won't have harm as a consequence of anything other than rolling to kick some ass or protect someone. Mm-hmm. Um, can I- Aaron, would you mind reading luck? When you spend a point of luck, pick one. Decrease a wound you have suffered to zero harm. After you roll, retroactively change the result to a 12. When you have no luck left, bad things will happen to you. Yeah. Uh, so basically, luck is like a short-term, a, a limited resource, get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, if you use it wantonly, you end up with bad luck, and that's not great. But also, if you don't use it, you're kind of willing, letting a resource go to waste. So balancing luck is an important part of the game. Uh, I think that's basically everything in terms of getting you guys adjusted to the system. Um, I will go over the Keeper agenda now, and then we'll move on to our character intros. So for me, the agenda every week is to make sure the world seems real, play to see what happens, and make the hunter's lives dangerous and scary. To do that, I have some principles that I need to follow. Put horror in everyday situations. Address the hunters, not the players. Use the keeper moves without names. Be a fan of the hunters. Build a coherent mythology in play. Remember that nothing is safe. Name everyone they meet and make them seem like normal folks. Ask questions and build on the answers. Sometimes, Give them exactly what they earned rather than what they wanted. Check what's happening off screen. Don't always decide what happens. And keep in mind that everything is a threat. Always say what the principles demand, what the rules demand, what your preparation demands, and what honesty demands. So in effect, my goal here is to put you guys into situations and let you deal with those situations as I take your actions and the actions of the monsters and people you'll encounter to their logical conclusion. I will be reiterating some of these points at the beginning of every mystery just so that we have that actively in our memories so that we can continue to work towards playing the game, telling the story, and really using this game to its fullest extent. Uh, with Star Wars, we obviously tended to play around the game rather than playing with the game. And I think with the way that Powered by the Apocalypse works, it'll be much easier for us to play with the game rather than around the game in this case. So with that, I would like to ask you all, why are you coming to New York? Okay, so I think Bev has the simplest explanation for being in New York, and that's being from just on the other side of the river. Um, Bev is in New York very frequently, just kind of like shoots the shit with their friends, goes to restaurants, generally exists on either side of the river frequently. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I feel think, like... I think the draw to Central Park for Bev is maybe like they're with their friends and they're like, oh, we heard there's going to be like some really cool like street performer or whatever like pop-up shop or whatever and they get dragged to central park is it possible they are being dragged to either the natural history museum or the met i don't think they would have to be dragged to them 
Because both of those are literally on Central Park. Yeah, yeah. I just don't think they would have to get dragged to okay, that's fair. those places. I would like them to be dragged to Central Park for something that is kind of frivolous and... Maybe some out-of-town friends wanted to... Yeah, they wanted to go see, like... Wanted to zoo. go ice skating in Central Park or whatever. And... Or, like, they wanted to go see the zoo. Probably not in the winter. Oh, the, we're, we're starting in the Otherwise, winter. how do you have ice skating? When We're starting in the winter? We're starting in winter of 2024. I should have clarified that. I apologize. Yeah. Um, yeah, Bev's friends kind of drag them there for some pretty touristy stuff because they're from out of town. Okay, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Aaron, what has brought you from a to New York? Investigating Victoria Spears found in Central Park. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I have the page up right now. <laughs> okay, so Euphrema is there specifically because of Janet and Rosetta Vandervoort. That checks out, honestly. <laughs> that checks out a lot. Um, I didn't intend to do that. <laughs> or was, was that just one you were looking at? Were you looking at like cryptids and weird things weird in New, New York, York City? City stuff specifically? And then you came across the Vanderwort sisters. Yep, I'm on nyctourism.com/slash/article/slash/urgent/legend/slideshow. <laughs> <laughs> it's the last one. <laughs> That's very funny. Okay. <laughs> so so Euphrema is there. Euphrema's the only one there for the purposes of actual investigation. And like I how often does Euphrema end up working with like locals on her investigations? Or is she more of a like Um However often they're willing to. Mm-hmm. So I I f- I figure from what we've talked about before with, like, the cryptid hunting community that's been mm-hmm. built into this. It's like, I'm sure some of them are very standoffish and secretive and all that. But around areas like New York City or other large metropolitan areas, I'm sure they're more willing to show off. Mm-hmm. More tour guidey, maybe. Okay, so, Erica... Hmm? What is Riley coming to New York City for? A few things. Um, so, okay, give me time of year. We are beginning um, in this game. Yes, so we'll, like, I'd say sometime around, like, January 7th, 8th, early January. Right after the events of January 6th, okay. Right, uh, <laughs> President RFK Jr. has just been sworn in and made vaccines illegal. Cool, okay, yeah. Um... I I think Riley is um, taking a train down mm-hmm. from New Hampshire um, to New York City. Um, she's going with a few friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I assume there must be some Concord to New York City train. I don't train. Um, okay, so Northeast Regional Amtrak. Um, or even Portsmouth. I don't know. I believe you're gonna have to get to boston some way somehow first okay. because the northeast regional goes from boston to like newport news or Roanoke, well, depending. Um, given that the fictional town riley lives in is 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 basically hampton 
the mm-hmm. tourist sea town in New Hampshire. Um, uh, we get it's it's not that far. It's like fifteen miles from or 20, 20 miles from Boston. So there's probably a bus, some sort of bus route. Um, so I think Riley. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're pretty close. Yeah. In fact, Riley hopped on a bus to get to Boston, um, where she met up with a couple of her college friends. Um, and so, um, yeah, um, friends, I think probably even high school friends. Mm -hmm. And then like they went to, uh, Filston university and, um, and then left, like, and went to a bigger city to like make lives because they're in their twenties yeah i imagine a bunch of them probably like a bunch of high school friends probably went to like nyu or the new school or various other new york city institutions like of higher education and like you know some of the overachievers were in the general like boston burlington like there's like five fancy colleges around there i feel like so Uh, yeah um now did riley go to high school or does Riley have any friends who went to like Smith College or Mount Holyoke or any of the other Marxist lesbian training academies? Uh yeah, probably. Um I like uh like Riley's main activity in high school and what she got a scholarship for into college was was cross country. Tra- yeah. Or cross country, right. That's a different category. But yeah, cross-country running. Um, And so I think she made a lot of friends there. But Mm -hmm. also, like, her parents um, emphasized academics so much. And they're both professors, right? And so, like, um, there was no getting away from also kind of ending up in, like, the AP classes or the advanced classes. So definitely Mm -hmm. also has a lot of friends from that zone. And I would imagine some of those might have ended up in, yeah, a uh, Marxist lesbian college or two. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, um, I think, yeah, some of my closest friends, um, you know, uh, from Philston, probably went to Philston U and ended up going to Boston after undergrad. Um, mm-hmm. And then maybe some friends who went to Boston for college and, and have stayed around. Uh, I'm catching a bus down there and then we're going to hop on an Amtrak down to New York. Um, I think probably like some of the more nerdy types like are really excited to see some musicals. So we're going to see like Hades Town and we're going to see um, God, I do not keep abreast of what's current, but we're going to see a few musicals um, while we're down there. We are also going to be hitting up some of like the touristy stuff because um uh, like a couple of the friends have never done the Statue of Liberty and stuff, right? Well, that's um, in New Jersey, so yes, but you can get to it from New York City. I'm not. I'm not actually going to contend with you that I absolutely contend that the Statue of Liberty is in New Jersey. I agree. Um, uh, but... that, that's uh, specific jokes and cultural memes aside i imagine you're probably also headed to um like central park and stuff like that yeah but and this is the one thing riley is really trying to convince her friends to to come along Mm -hmm. um is the new york public library because like one it's like historically hyper important and like 
this incredible repository short of like Library of Congress. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Riley has spent three years getting a master's in library science. Um, yeah, that, so she that just makes sense. nerds out about it. But also, like, I think chances are good that, like, on the down low, maybe there's some really old books that, like, have some weird stuff in it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's, like, of interest to the order. And, like, you know, just, like, a not even a mission from the order. It's like, oh, well, you're down there. Can you look up this Greek manuscript they have in their ancient records section? And, like, I don't think it was translated correctly or something. So is this for, like, a weekend trip to New York or, like... Yeah, like a three-day weekend. Okay. I guess if we're doing uh, a lot of stuff. I will let you know now that if you do plan on going to New York City on the weekend for a weekend trip, don't plan to go to the public library because Saturday and Sunday service at the New York Public Library have been cut by the current mayor of New York, which is also canon in Disaster Lesbians because okay. it does take place in real 2024. Well, and that's why the Monday... Um, what is that Monday you get as a national holiday in? Is it is it Martin Luther King in January? I might yeah. be. Martin Luther yes. King. Yes. That's a slightly later, I guess, but yeah, it's like it's not that much later. I feel like uh January fifteenth is a reasonable okay. time to be down there. Um, so I had to look it up because I've been fully Canadianized and I don't remember American <laughs> holidays. Yeah. It, well it's like American, a, lot of, a lot of American holidays are wonky in that they move around. Um, so, like, you kind of have to look them up anyway. Um, but, yeah, um, I think it's probably four of us all together going to New York, kind of having a girls weekend um, and, and just kind of do it up. Um, I think we have reservations on Friday evening when we get there to, like, some fun restaurant. Um, nothing you know, not like Michelin star or something, but right. So you're, you're going to like, um, I don't know, uh, modern lovers in Brooklyn rather than Morimoto at Chelsea market. I, well, I think like, like Ethiopian or Filipino or something that I can't get in Filston, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, uh, that yeah. I, I, I'm going to be honest, my major pull for nice restaurants that I want to go to or I wanted to or have been to in New York are all vegan restaurants. So hey. when I mentioned Modern Lovers, delightful vegan restaurants, some of the best vegan chicken parm I've ever had. Um, uh, but you also then have to go to Brooklyn to get there. Uh, and that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's that's what's bringing me into New York. Um, okay, I think that gives me plenty to work with as I set up your first mystery. Ooh. I'm, I'm excited. Um, and then the next time we meet, we will be recording our first adventure. Chicks with Dice is a part of Danger Square Productions. To support the work we do, visit our website, dangersquare.ca. Monster of the Week is written by Michael Sands and published by Evil Hat Studios. Remember, the best way to help the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, or to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the number one way a podcast gains new listeners, and a close second is five-star reviews. The theme song for Disaster Lesbian's Guide to the Apocalypse is My Mommy Dom Spit in My Mouth and Now I'm a Kami by Over My Dead Name. Visit 
linktr.ee slash omdm, that's omdm and not omdn, for Allison's other work. This episode features Aaron Cotter as Euphrema Naylor. Aaron uses they-them pronouns. 40 Under 40 gay luminary Erica Belsaus played Riley Knudsen. Erica uses any all pronouns. Emma Hislop played Bev. Emma uses shrug emoji pronouns, which function like any all pronouns. It also featured me, Kathleen Hislop. I use she, her, and its pronouns. Until next time, keep an eye out for anything weird. camera comes up on Columbus Circle as cars navigate a series of red lights and pedestrian crossings, appearing only as blurs. The camera pedestals up as if following the path of an elevator as time lapses from midday to twilight. Those familiar with the area would recognize the shot as coming from the top floor of the Museum of Arts and Design, which, by the way, is a very lovely museum that the narrator highly recommends you check out if you're in Manhattan. We see from here the USS Maine Monument at the mouth of Central Park. People flock in and out of the park where small tufts of green still show from the occasional conifer. A pond is visible as the camera moves in a sweeping drone shot towards the park. Frozen over, the pond has lines carved into its ice as if from skates. A no skating sign is visible next to the pond despite the evidence we see. Then, out of the corner of the shot emerge two elegant women wearing bustled dresses of bright red and purple. Their clothing seems to date them compared to what everyone else has been wearing and what we've seen of people so far. They glide effortlessly on skates across the ice in looping circles. Laughter rings out from the two women as a shadowed someone takes notice. As a figure tentatively approaches the pond, the women suddenly disappear. Now lightly illuminated, a man stands at the edge of the ice bewildered by what he just saw. The camera stays tight on the man as he turns around and walks away from the pond. Before he gets too far, the ice cracks loudly, and a scream erupts from off-camera. As he wheels around and sprints towards the camera, it pans to follow him onto the ice, which seems whole again for just a moment. A sleeved arm reaches through and pulls the man under the ice before he can so much as scream as we cut to black.